know that I, I just wanted to let you know that this particular uh, subject of emotional is what I had suggested that I try because I've had uh, quite a bit of uh, recovery and emotional. I'm still having recovery and emotional. Uh, so anyway, the first thing I wanted to think about was a three-legged stool as the three bottoms, but there's a top. So I got to thinking, well, what in the world is the top? And so I like to think of it as the mental because, you know, we have to have brain to do anything. And so quite often when Bill is uh, talking in his book, he's talking about mental obsession as well as physical, emotional, spiritual. And so when the, if the if thing's got a top and then the three legs, it's a mental and then the three legs on the bottom to hold it up. And I like that other one where it showed the three legs going across each other. Uh, that's true too. They all have to work together. I wasn't quite sure how I was gonna be able to separate spiritual from emotional in my talk because that's you know they go together and of course so does the physical but anyway what i want to do is i'm going to read some things and i'm going to talk some more and so forth and so on uh, this is one of my old big books it has an outside cover i got a different cover on it. and it's on page 27 and the reason i'm reading this is because this is what I think I had has to do with the mental and emotional. <clears throat> the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where their state of mind existed to the extent that it does for you. Our friend told us, though, the gates of hell had closed in on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have what we call vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be the nature of a huge emotional displacement and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, and completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I've been trying to produce some of this emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. And he goes on to tell this man, there is a possibility, but not with me. The psychiatrist, psychologist knew that he had no power to change anyone else. And that's one of the things that I had learned too, that I had no power to change anyone and including myself. And, you know, the first step says I'm powerless over alcohol. Well, I'm powerless over my emotions. I'm powerless over things that are going on in my life right this minute. And it was rather strange this morning. I had several things going on that was causing me to have that nervous feeling. Uh, my nervous feeling quite often gets into my gut. And sometimes that can cause some more problems, just a stomach ache. So anyway, that's true for me. Whenever I've had sort of nervous, quite often, that's, that's where I will notice, notice the feeling. And of course, when I was compulsively eating, I could sort of dull, dull that down by putting food in the mouth. And of course, when it went in the mouth, it went down, <laughs> went down the tube and into there and made that uh, sort of get calmer to some degree. 
it didn't work perfectly because food isn't as good as some drugs, but it definitely did work. And uh, also one of the other aspects of this thing that, that I had for uh, trying to deal with this emotional problem was if I took my hand, put my food in, picked up the food wherever and put it in my mouth, there was something even about the hand to mouth action that was a part of being uh, making me feel like I had a healthier body, even though I knew I was doing the wrong thing. So it, it was almost like smoking, you know, you could put your man. So I'm just glad that I don't feel those same senses of, of obsession anymore. I have the food, as I said, the food has been in place. And, and it's basically like the ones that they had back in the early 80s. It was, you know, they're called the 301. Uh, Basically, you have three times you eat, and in between those times, you don't have anything with any kind of calories. And I had several adventures with learning how to be okay with how it came out with me without being a perfectionist about it, because I, I tended to always want to be everything just exactly perfect. So one of the first experiences I had when I wanted to become abstinent was I said to myself, well, I'm going to start out this morning. I was thinking diet, of course. This was early. This was before I got abstinent. And I was going to try it. So I ate whatever I had for breakfast. And I thought, now, how am I going to get between the two meals? Well, I did something. And then I sat down to, to have lunch. And I'm thinking, well, I'll just have a little broth. And, and that, like I said, diet thinking. So on behold, I'm thinking, well, my broth would be a little bit better if I threw in a white cracker. Okay, well, part of my plan was to not eat white flour. <laughs> so right away, I said to myself, oh, my gosh, why, how come you're so then and then and then? I just stand down and down on myself because I had messed up right away. And so <laughs> that's when it dawned on me that I had a man, mind like this art fit in the book because I had a mind that was a chronic person that kept beating herself up. And one of the reasons, maybe one of the major reasons I did that was because of trying to be a perfectionist. You know, I was just a little five-year-old girl when I had an experience that caused me to know <laughs> that I was a, a nervous little person, but it was a part. It was just part of, of going on through life. Um, my um, mother always took me to kindergarten because it was, you know, clear across town. And so one day, the teacher said to me, "You're to go home in a taxi." Now here I am, five years old, and I think to that, I know that teacher's wrong. I'm not supposed to go home in a taxi. I never go home in a taxi, but. The teacher said I was supposed to do it. Well, I'm a very obedient little girl, so I get in this taxi. I can still remember this. Now, here I am, 85. I can still remember this, getting in that taxi. Two men in the front, me in the back. And I thought, oh, God. Okay, look, the house, the place where I got out, you know, got into the taxi, went down, went under an underpass, and then kept on going. And I, I could see that it was going the right direction. So anyway, got home, got out. Nothing had happened in the taxi. Uh, I got out, went up to the door, opened the door, and nobody was home. 
So right away I knew I'd made a mistake. And I see, you know, I made the mistake. That's the way I felt. I had gone there in the taxi when I wasn't supposed to. So anyway, my mom showed up shortly after uh, that. And so to make it, make myself feel better or make them feel better or whatever, I'm hiding behind the door and they, as they come in and I jump out and say, boo, you know, it's trying to make it sort of lighthearted or something. Well, you know, my parents never did figure out why that happened. How come that taxi came? And every once in a while I think about, my goodness, what could have happened? You know, what could have happened? But thankfully it didn't happen that way. And yet I still took the blame for it in some time in my head. And so this was the same way I went through quite a few other things in my early childhood, taking the blame for things that really wasn't my fault, uh, ending up being a victim that, didn't understand that it was the person that was doing the action that was the problem, not myself. And so that's where I ended up getting quite a bit of nervous, nervousness and quite a bit of anxiety. And so um, as a child, I probably didn't think much about using food much to, to do anything about it. Uh, I, you know, I tried to keep really busy and run around. I had a, had a very good ability to think and, and study. So I worked very, really hard to get good grades. And of course, you know, getting an A was the best. But then my parents being also perfectionists, I'd come home with a B and they'd say, well, why can't you get an A in that one? You know, so again, even though they were trying to encourage me, I took it as a negative. You know, they don't like me because I got a B on this one. So anytime anything was put up like that, that I felt like I had been wrong, that was just more added to this lack of feeling good about myself. So I, I'm thinking that as I got a little bit older, I can't remember exactly when, but I started uh, eating quite a bit of candy. Now, you know, remember another thing in my absence plan is not to eat sugar. So here I was, you know, in the 16, 15, 13, in that area. And so I ended up doing quite a bit of damage to my teeth and have had lots of bridges and all that kind of stuff. And so I can still remember being in the dentist chair and because I didn't like the sense of having Novocaine, I just didn't like the fact that when he put the needle in there and it got numb, I didn't like the, didn't like the numbing coming off. So somehow or another, I convinced that dentist that I didn't need Novocaine. And by golly, I didn't. So here's another part of my story that's rather weird because I had this high pain tolerance. I can sit there and have the drill in, a, in my teeth and not, I can feel it, but it's not like, it's not painful. So again, there's, it's just a really strain, emotional pain, physical pain, they, they go together, but uh, sometimes you just have an unusual situation. So that was another thing that I realized about myself, but the candy, of course, had messed up my teeth. Didn't think anything about that in relationship to my compulsive eating until I got abstinent. Uh, and so I uh, had fairly regular uh, school attendance and graduated from high school. Then I wanted to get away from home. <laughs> I thought I'm going to run. Not, I wanted to run away when I was younger, but I <laughs> didn't do it. So but I wanted to get away from home. So sort of this geographical escape, they call it nowadays. You know. 
So anyway, I was able to go off from West Virginia to Michigan to go to school, went to Michigan State, and I was a scientist. I had loved science, and so one of the things I was going to do was get there and be such a wonderful scientist that I was going to discover the cure for cancer, and then everybody would love me and respect me, and I'd feel so good about myself. So again, the only way I can have any kind of feeling so good about myself is trying to be something that God didn't really intend for me to be that. But I couldn't see that at that time. Uh, another part about it, and, and this relates to the spiritual thing, is what what did I think about God? Um, and there was a combination of trusting that God is a good God, and there was also a combination of God was wanting me to be perfect. And so I always felt guilty or and, you know, all this sense of lack of self-esteem was there. So as I was in college, I got to a place where I thought, well, maybe if I'm uh, smart enough, I can study and come up with a proof about no God. Uh, I don't know God, what made me think I would ever prove that. But anyway, I spent a lot of time looking. And of course, you can't prove one way or the other whether there's a God. So I just sort of gave up trying that. And I was still going to a church and, and believing to some degree where, where that was. Uh, mostly, I got the idea that if you're good, you're okay. <laughs> so that was pretty much what I was doing, trying to be good, do good things. Uh, anyway, I, I met my husband-to-be in a biology class. Uh, and that was another place where it was interesting to see how the emotions worked in that case. Uh, I was a, a sophomore and he was a freshman when I met him in biology class. And so I thought, well, you know, he's a nice looking kid, but he's too young for me. <laughs> Again, I had this idea of what kind of a prince on the horse was going to come in and save me and make me wonderful so he didn't he didn't look like what i thought he was supposed to look so anyway as we're getting better acquainted he's where you know he didn't look like the regular typical college kid, young man either and so i'm thinking to myself well this is a nice friend so what <laughs> walking across the campus with this man he shares with me that he is a vet and he is there on a GI Bill. And that's one reason that he was older. Plus, he had a car. Now, back in those days, freshmen never had cars at school. In fact, a good number of people didn't have cars at school back in the 50s. So here we go. Wow, there's a girl can get a guy with a car. <laughs> How much excitement was that? So again, the emotions of feeling good about myself and say I could have a boyfriend with a car. Part of the problem was though that I still didn't like everything about him. And so I was dating other guys at the same time and I hadn't hardly dated at all in high school. I was, like I said, too shy and too nervous and just didn't feel good about getting out with people. and. Either the girls or the boys, I, you know, I just, I could do some things with them, but I always felt sort of like I was on the outside somehow. I can remember an example of one time when I was, I'm, I'm a teenager or so, and I was with some of these people in, in my neighborhood, and they, they said, okay, well, we're all going to go ice skating. Now, this was a big, huge ice skating rink, inside rink, 
And so I said, okay, I'll go home and get my ice skates because I'd been up there quite a few times. Well, anyway, I got my ice. It's only about a block or so to get back to my house. And I got back over there and they'd left. So either they hadn't heard me and didn't realize I was coming back or something. But my mind said, they didn't like me. They left me on purpose. Da, 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 da. Uh, now, I hadn't thought about that for some time. But that's the thing about sharing these things. Some of these old stuff come up and remind you of what, what it was that was causing you to feel so just, you know, out of sorts with other people or out of sorts with yourself. So anyway, as I was dating um, his husband-to-be and these other men, I thought, oh, you know, I really think it'd be a good idea to probably just find some other guy. <laughs> so I had this first boyfriend, and I said, well, no, I'm not going to date you anymore. And this second boyfriend said, and he was sort of angry, and I thought, well, that's okay. So I was ready to tell the, the last one, which was my husband. His name is Art. And then tell him. And sometimes I couldn't say it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to find some good reason that I shouldn't be connected with him. Again, you know, emotional, reasonable stuff is rather tricky. So I thought, he's going to invite me up to Michigan. Well, you're in Michigan, to more northern Michigan, where his parents lived. So I thought, here's my chance. I'm going to go up there, and they're going to be whatever I thought they were going to be. They were not going to be what I thought I wanted. And so I was just ready to say, good, this is going to be a good reason not to have this boyfriend anymore. Well, I got up there, and that's completely wrong. His father was a delightful man. He enjoyed biology, and we, we looked at things that, like that nature. And his mother was very understanding. She had her own emotional problems. And I'm sure she probably related to some of the stuff that I had. So even while I was up there, I was, I was upset with Art. And I got out and I thought, I'm going to just get out and go away. And I thought, I'm walking down the street in this strange town. I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing? I can't go anywhere up here. So anyway, I went back. And my mother-in-law had talked to my husband-to-be trying to explain to him that, you know, I was just uh, needed some help and understanding. So she sort of took my part. Uh, very, very uh, comforting and very merry, making me aware that this was the right person for me to, to get married to. So uh, we did get married. I was still a senior in, in the college, and he was a junior. My folks had been in helping me go there with the, you know, the payment. So they continue to pay for my schooling because they wanted me to get an education. And that, I'm really glad that, that I did continue my education because it did help me with that because I, like, I had this good brain. So I was liking to get education. But uh, at one point, I'm getting up uh, toward the end of my schooling and, and the counselor says, well, what are you going to do with a science degree? Now, you got to remember, this is the 50s. Uh, how many women had science degrees? How many women did something in, outside of just being a cook and a homemaker and possibly a teacher? Well, I decided I had to do what this counselor said. Better get a teacher certificate. So as it turned out, I was able to go back 
to my hometown and they had a college there and I could take some teacher classes there and that helped me get my teacher certificate. But when I went back to, to Michigan, the school, of course you had to do the thing where you're the training and the teacher, you know. And so I just, oh, I had a terrible time because these young kids, they could tell that I wasn't a disciplinarian, that I didn't really have, I mean, I understood the subject, but trying to help them, you know, enjoy class, they could probably enjoy class by teasing me or whatever. I felt really, really uncomfortable. And so as it turned out, I did pass and I did graduate. And so there was no way under Green Earth I was going to be a teacher because I still only had one more year to be in that area. And plus, there was all sorts of substitute teachers there being a college town. And so that never even came across my mind. But in the meantime, I had been in a, a clerk's office. It was a registration office for the college. And I could do this really simple job. I'd done some of it before I graduated. I, it was a real simple job. Of, back in those days, the information things were not like it is today where you can't get any information from anybody. This had a whole file of these old computer cards. You met, probably most of you know what the old ones were, a cardboard card with a bunch of holes in it. And then that told all the information about whoever was on the card. And so as it turned out, People could come up to me and ask me, well, where is so-and-so? Which class are they in or whatever? And I could answer them because I'm sitting there with these cards. I didn't have to read the holes. <laughs> you know, it was printed out on the card. But uh, that was it was really fun in a way. And these other people who were working there, these young um, other women, were very friendly. I felt very accepted by that particular group of people. Uh, they were all pretty much uh, in the same boat as I was, a, a married woman that needed to do some work and while their husband was whatever they, whatever they were doing. And so they, I felt accepted. I didn't really do anything much with them except go to the work and come back again. But that was, that was another place where once in a while I felt like I fit in. So as it turned out, I have finished up that and time of doing that job. And my husband had to go up to uh, Northern Michigan. So I was alone uh, and living in this apartment. And so I would walk over to the job and come back again. And uh, it was okay. I can still remember having dinner with some of the other uh, people that were in this apartment. And I think some of them were from India or someplace. I used a lot of curry anyway. And so they invited me for dinner. And I went there and with no problem at all. I just reminding myself of how it was an interesting experience. And I still remember they served like a melted ice cream. <laughs> and of course, you guys think I'm still thinking lots of food. Okay, so when did I start this compulsive eating okay well that's a, it's sort of interesting because okay i'm married uh i was 20 years old when i got married i was disappointed that i couldn't vote in november my birthday was two weeks later than the date to vote for president that year and so okay i couldn't do it so all right i saw so anyway my husband graduated and then he said well, you got to get a job, of course. And he was a forester. 
So in those days, he applied to jobs and find he found one in out here in Oregon. And he didn't really want to go out to Oregon because he wanted to stay in Michigan. But the Forest Service seemed like a good job, and so he accepted it. And then it was probably maybe another week or so later that he got a job offer in Michigan. And I don't remember which agency it was. But he and I were both the same. If you made a commitment to something, you, you didn't break it. So we had promised the Forest Service that we're coming. So what we were going to do. So in our mind, we thought, we'll come out here to the West, stay a couple of years, then move back East. Well, Harris fell here in Baker City, Oregon, so uh, that didn't quite work out that way. And one of the reasons is because uh, there's a society difference in the East area than there is in the West. Uh, part of part of my not feeling really good about myself was when my folks who had you know, prominent positions in town, they wanted me to be a debutante, which is a fancy word for a girl supposedly going to be doing something special. <laughs> anyway, because I didn't feel good about myself, I said, no, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And they accepted the fact that I couldn't do it. And so that was just something about a social society thinking and so I got out here, and it was just not nothing like that. You know, everybody was just kind of casual. <laughs> and so uh, moved. Actually, first place we moved was Grants Pass, Oregon. Okay. I still really haven't started compulsively eating yet, have I? But I had gotten pregnant on the way out. So after I got pregnant, I had a child. I didn't think about losing the weight at all. I, I probably only gained maybe 10 pounds or so extra, you know. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't seem to bother me. And so then we moved again, had another child, had some more weight. And still, it wasn't really bothering me. It wasn't making me think, I wasn't thinking anything about whether I was having a problem with food at all. Uh, I was dealing with lots of other things that made me feel less than. Uh, I had an experience of being a, a teacher. I ended up doing substitute teaching even though I didn't want to. I got convinced that it was okay. So I went to this one town and they said, we need somebody. We need to have them come in and work for the next three months because this teacher is not going to be able to finish the job. And it was in commercial classes. <laughs> well, I had taken typing, but I knew nothing about bookkeeping or all some of these other things that went along. But again, I made the effort, and by golly, I was able to do it. But part of the problem was I meant my two little boys needed help. So my mother-in-law came out and to help, and she stayed there. She became the house person. And I was constantly, because of my perfectionism, wanting to do this job so perfectly, I'd sit at night and go over these classes of typing and try to find every mistake they ever made. So I wanted, it to be, wanted them to be perfect in their typing. I mean, so it, I spent an awful lot of time doing things that didn't really uh, nurture my, my getting together with my family because I'm so concentrating on doing this job. And so anyway, I got through that three months. Again, the kids were not particularly well behaved and and even the whole school system wasn't very well uh, organized. But anyway, I got through and was thankful. And I see, at that time, I still had this relationship with God where I believed, but I didn't believe. 
if go if things were going along good and I got through something, then God was good. So once I got through that, God was good. Okay. Well, then we moved again, and I moved to some places where I had chance to be bowling with friends and uh, doing other things like that. So there were times when I felt okay, but the most of the time I'd be in some place and I think, now the next time I go to a new town, because <laughs> I knew we were gonna move a bit, I'm gonna find this perfect place. <laughs> and so that was my thinking, okay, next town it's gonna be perfect place. And of course it wasn't, but, you know, there is no perfect place. Life isn't full of perfection, it's full of acceptance and going through life as it is and not having this emotion that thinks you've gotta be so perfect spec spe special. Uh, you just need to be uh, recognizing that I'm just a regular person, <laughs> but I didn't know that then. I couldn't. I couldn't comprehend completely how this uh, business of fitting in as was not working so well for me. I'm sure that by that time I had already started eating more compulsively, uh, but it was again. It still wasn't the kind of problem that that person would might think anything about. Yeah, theoretically, I guess if if I had been at any time ready to do a 12-step program before I ever realized I was an OE, I probably would have gone to something like Emotions Anonymous. I didn't know anything about it way back then, but I could have. Uh, and as it is, because I ended up in OA, I also went to another program because I found out that I had the symptoms of adult child of an alcoholic. So I have this codependent nature. And I had no idea I had that until I went to the meeting. And I thought, well, my golly, I must fit in this group too. But OA is my primary thing. OA is my primary uh, answer for this program. So I knew, I knew I needed to stay with OA and also have this other program as well. And so as I it was telling you about my cracker experience. I needed to go back to that because it goes along with the emotions. Uh, as I said, I was so down on myself. I realized, okay, I, there's about there's something on me like like I've heard from alcoholics. And by that time, I was working as a counselor in an alcohol clinic here, and I kept hearing these people who were working there that were recovered alcoholics. Plus, I went to some AA meetings to to, to see what other things were happening. I sent a client there and I'd go to make sure he showed up. And so I uh, had uh, uh, had this understanding when I heard these people at AA saying things that sounded like me. I think, oh, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, you know. well, anyway, as I said, I had these symptoms from being a child of alcoholic type family. Again, I, that's another thing that's rather a mystery. It wasn't really alcoholism. I would say probably emotional and, and uh, mental kind of isms would be the reason that I have this kind of symptoms. But the compulsive eating was the major thing that was going on with me as I was trying to cope with my emotions. So the way I was <clears throat> planning on uh, coping with my emotions was to, you know, do the best I can, work hard and so forth and so on. So <laughs> the reason I ended up trying to um, abstain, I got into OA in September. I didn't 
really want to do anything about my food. I just wanted to learn how to be more like a recovered AA person who was calm and understanding and loving. And, and I thought, I, that's what I really want. Uh, but anyway, I got to OA. And uh, that was because these other two women were ready to help me. And they were working on themselves as well, of course. And so we started the meeting. And it was about two months, as I said, in, in November. I had this experience where somebody was very, very upset with me in the classes. And so this particular person was really, you know, really giving me a hard time and basically saying that they were just wishing I would die. In fact, they might have said they were praying I'd die. Well, here we are. Here's that God coming in there again. You know, well, God wouldn't answer a prayer like that. I mean, that's crazy alcoholic. But again, part of me said, well, maybe that could happen. You know, I've, I've not got the most wonderful um, mental ability. Maybe it could happen. So that's when I decided I would start praying the 14-day prayer. Now, I had learned about this because of going to OA, but I'd also heard about it before that from some of the recovery AA people. And I imagine those of you who have been here a while probably know what the 14-day prayer is, but I'm going to repeat the information anyway because it's so important, important to me. And it says, if you resent somebody and you can't stand them and you don't know what to do about it, you can start praying for them, and you pray for them what you want for yourself. And it says in the book, you can pray for them even though you don't mean it. Just continue to pray for them, things you want for yourself. So this other person, I thought, okay, I'm going to start doing that. And that was when I had the desire to start being abstinent. Rather interesting, huh? Well, I guess I didn't describe exactly what my, my compulsion was like by that time. So I guess I could tell you that. I told you how I was feeding myself that way. Uh, so it was a constant grazing. So by uh, picking up food and helping myself uh, feel better by food, I would continue on going on. So there I become abstinent. And then I learned that this other person wasn't really praying not bad. They were actually praying the 14-day prayer themselves, and it made me realize that God was actually there way before me, helping this uh, person, myself, become more aware of how there is a spiritual aspect and an emotional aspect that, that helped me recover the physical aspect. So after I got discouraged with putting the cracker in and realizing I needed more help, I went ahead and just ate whatever I wanted the rest of that day because, you know, I already blew it. <laughs> and, but the thing that happened was that particular evening, I went out with some people to do some thumb-throwing something, and I can't remember what. And every time we went out, we'd always have some sort of dessert. Okay, so here I'm thinking, all right, you've already messed up, but what do you want for this dessert? So instead of getting something sweet, I got potato salad. So I knew my higher power had given me a different message that first day. And so that's the way I looked at it three separate times a day. No white refined sugar, no white refined white flour. Now you notice I say refined white flour and refined white sugar. And again, I've not been exactly 
what you want to say, dogmatic about that. Uh, I have had a very low amount of every of those two things. But as far as eating in between meals, I definitely haven't done that. But here's another place where, the, where it's sort of like my higher power was helping me along because I would say, okay, I can't have anything but uh, tea or coffee and diet drinks. And I was also chewing diet gum because uh, I needed to have something going on. And so I was just trying to be very, very perfect about that particular part of it. And so I was out after, I don't know how long it had been, I'd been doing this. And I was out in a wheat field. My husband was along there with me, helping me. And so we had a cooler full of things and I, we had water and juice and stuff. So I'm sitting there doing this job. We, we were counting wheat stalks. <laughs> it's an, in, a survey job, quite an interesting job. And so I said to him, give me something to drink. And he hands me something to drink. And I started drinking and then it dawned on me, it was orange juice. Calories! Ah! <laughs> so I realized, wait a minute. Let's listen to your higher power in this. It's okay to have some orange juice at the beginning of your next meal. So even though it wasn't right my time to plan to have that eating, I could put it in my next meal. So that was one of the other ways that I could have three times a day. I didn't necessarily say I was going to eat all of the food right at the very same moment. But once I got to a certain place, then I knew that was the end of that meal. And so while you guys were having your lunch, I was having my lunch and I had certain things and then I went and brushed my teeth. And so I know I'm not going to eat again until sometime later on this afternoon, this evening, and not this afternoon. Uh, I'll probably eat between six and seven, maybe. I don't know exactly. Uh, the plan of eating that I have has been very simple. It's not necessarily easy, but very simple to understand. Uh, and once I got past that first craving place, you know, when I first started being absent, I, I had this terrible sense that the food was calling to me. <laughs> come and get me, come and get me. It's sort of like Alice in Wonderland kind of thinking. And of course, because I had the, this spiritual, emotional experience, like I talked about here in the book, I didn't want to go back into the way I was. So I definitely was going to not take any extra food to try to help myself feel good. I was going to continue doing what I needed to do. Well, the program gives you all sorts of things to do rather than eat. There's literature. We didn't have a great deal of literature in the 80s, but there was a big book. Uh, we had the earliest Brown book, the stories of OA people. And we had the Dignity of Taurus pamphlet and some other pamphlets. And so I sit down and read some literature. One of the major tools I did to help my emotions was writing. I could sit there and just start writing. Sometimes I'd just be writing whatever was bugging me and just get it, putting it on paper. I think I even heard somebody earlier on this retreat talk about how something from your head can go down your arm and onto the paper. And it just gets, gets that emotional out of, your, out of your head. So I did a lot of writing. Um, sometimes it was writing to God. Sometimes it was just writing. Sometimes I'd write where the idea was if I stop writing what I thought 
I was supposed to be writing and just start asking God, what did God have to say? I, somehow or another, I drew some writing, and it seemed to be coming from a higher power rather than from my own head, which I remember going to a retreat of OA, and they telling about this, and I thought, oh, I don't think that sounds really logical, <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> That's the amazing thing about our program. It's not exactly logical. It's a it's an emotional situation where you can look at things from a different point of view. It's just like an amazing change in life that happens and had happened to me. And so I was continuing to do that. Now I asked Bill if I could screen share and I'm gonna show you something that I had one of the times when I was, uh, let's see if I can do this. I'm still new at this kind of stuff. Well, anyway, there's a picture of an arch there. I'm just going to keep messing around with this. Primarily what it's saying is it's, it's quoting out of the big book about an arch to recovery with the pathway and, a, and the construction with the right cement and all that kind of stuff. So I think probably a good number of you know what that uh, is like. And if you don't, that's okay, too. I don't want to keep mon monkeying around with it. Uh, because basically I just put that in there just to sort of add some more information to my talk. And I didn't probably really need to do it there. But uh, the big book has great deal of recovery of understanding how to work this program. And one of the other parts of it that are really wonderful are all the stories. Uh, that was one of the places that I got a lot of emotional help was listening to other people's stories, the ones in AA, the ones in OA, the ones in my other program, and they would be saying something and whatever it was, it would help me emotionally to listen to them. That word listen was very important. Prior to having recovery of any sort, I never listened to anybody. I would always think, you know, what is it they want? Uh, how can I best answer them? Uh, you know, what, what is, what's going on here? I, I better come up. Now, when I go to any meeting, I just sit there and listen. I can just listen and say, okay, I don't have to understand exactly what I'm supposed to say at all. <laughs> uh, I just let it go and wait and see what somebody else is saying. So that's one of the, one of the things that I learned that was causing me problem because it's my mind kept giving me all these negative messages. Oh, I hear somebody got the arch. Who, who, who was that? <laughs> somebody did it. Good for you. I think this is similar to what you were. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, that's it. It's in color, though. That's great. Yeah, hopefully. Take, take the village. There you go. All right. Well, all right. So here we go. And, it's, and it talks about the uh, big book. The bills made a number of construction references. And so it's got the bedrock. Whoops. Now, can you make your go a little bit so you can read the words down below there? There you go. The bedrock is one of the parts about it that makes it go firm. And then the foundation is where the bottom, if that is. The cement is how it makes it come together good. The cornerstone is there right there. And so it makes an arch, which we can walk through to recovery. Thank you for finding that and put it in, even in color. That's a lot better than mine. Uh, I'm not going to try to read all this to you, but uh, maybe wh whoever had that could possibly share it with other people if they, yeah. if they did. I'll paste the link in the chat. Okay, thank you. 
I appreciate this. That's one thing about the program I just told you a minute ago. When another person is needing help, the other person is there to help. And so, you know, this program is a we program. That's the way we continue to learn how to best be in doing this program. And a lot of you talked about having sponsors and you did exactly what your sponsor told you to do. Uh, due to my situation, there wasn't any really OA recovery people around. Uh, I was ready to do my fourth step. I started spooting right into stuff. And I thought, well, who am I going to go to? Well, I was in the other program, and she was a recovering alcoholic as well as the other one. And so I, I said to her, can you help me? She says, no. Now, in the past, I say, I'm into recovery by that time. I would have just felt so rejected. I might have gone back out to who knows where. But I realized, wait a minute, she has, she's going to say no. She's not saying it because of me. She's saying it because of her. So then it says in the big book, if you want to have help with somebody, you can go to your pastor. So I went to my pastor, and he said to me, I could do this with you, your fourth step and fifth step, but I really think there's somebody else that might be better to do it. And I'm sure the reason he said that is because he was a male. <laughs> I needed a female <laughs> to talk to about these things because there were a lot of stuff that I had never shared with anybody, and so sharing it with a pastor and a male pastor could have been really difficult. So I'm still back at my work and my my uh, place of work and the and I'm talking to some of the people there in the in the treatment center. And all of a sudden this one lady says, Well I can help you <laughs> Well she was a recovering alcoholic. She became my first sponsor. I don't think she really wanted to be called a sponsor, but basically that's what she was. And we got together regularly actually did like fourth and fifth step at the same time. She had all these questions and she we'd read them and not answer them right there. And of course, I also did some more writing and things like that. But uh, then I got more and more involved in going to AA meetings because I, you know, she was there. And I can remember after being there, oh, quite a few years, she said something to me about coming in and she said to the people in the room, Barbara's helped me so much. And I thought, what? How can I have helped her? <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's such a mystery about this program. The emotional stuff I was sharing with her was helping her with her own emotional stuff. And so that was what's really so wonderful about it. And then we share with each other. We don't try to make ourselves uh, special, you know, the, the uniqueness. We, don't have, we might have something a little bit different than somebody else, but that doesn't make us unique in the sense that we still have a compulsive eating problem. And so, All right, you have five minutes. Oh, wow. Minutes. Okay, well, I, we got into that that crazy little thing that I couldn't get up with. So I'm see. I'm trying to think of what I want to do to, to finish up. I guess the main thing I wanted to do was say the things I said to you a minute ago, but I'm going to read them to you just really quick, quickly. First of all, we have an honest program because we have an attitude that's shared, and I don't, I don't have to be uh, trying to pretend I'm something else. Uh, we have a program where we can trust in God, uh, anger and resentment. I can have acceptance. Uh, I can have the fact that when I'm feeling worthless, I can know I can help others. Uh, shame, I can be recognizing that shame is a false impression. And uh, confusion, I can stay with this truth of this program. 
And then hate, I can learn that love can overcome hate and distrust. Uh, when I saw other people recovering, I knew that I was trusting them. And I could see that if they, if they could do it, I could do it. So that was another way thing. Uh, I wrote this down about recovery. Recovery brings joy. That means that life is worth going through the problems rather than despair. Keep on keeping on. Have a sense of purpose. And so that's one of the major things that I thought. And I think I've said it several times that the loneliness is covered by the fact that we are a we program. And uh, before I was in recovery, I could feel alone, even with a big crowd of people, because it, it was my own self-concept that I needed to have changed. So I am going to try to share something else. I think this time it might come out right, I hope. Let me see here. Okay. All right. Now we got that same little problem where it's not quite in the in the top. Anyway, it's called a prayer for me and you. I like this little XOXO. I must remember I'm not God, but I do have one. <laughs> and it's a prayer to untie the knots. All right. Let's see if we can get this silly thing to move. Oh, goodness. Come on, Paige. Oh, there it is. I found it, I think. I hope. Come on. Uh, I found the little cursor thing, but it don't seem to want to do anything. Oh, come on. Uh, well, uh, let me try. Let me try it, try it again here. This is Jenny. Do you know where the um, arrows on your keyboard are? There's an up, a down, a left, and a right. Yeah. Can you find the down arrow for me and just hit that a couple? Oh, there we go. Yep. There so we go. Okay. Okay. Bit. Please have to untie the knots that are invading my mind and my heart and my life. Please remove the have knots, the can knots, the do knots that invade my mind. Please erase the will knots, the may knots, the might knots that invade my heart. Please release me from the could knots and would knots and should knots that invade my life. Most of all, dear God, I ask you to remove from my mind, my heart, and my life all the I am knots that I have allowed to hold me back. Please remove from my heart that I'm not loved enough. Today, dear God, I come to you and ask you to untie, eliminate, and erase all the knots that have invaded every aspect of my life. So I think that's basically what I found my higher power doing, giving me more and more awareness that I'm not. <laughs> yeah, stop shooting on yourself. You know, you don't do that anymore. Yeah, think positive. Uh, when things start bothering me, my nerves keep going wrong, which they were doing this this morning. One of the things I do is I sit and I just concentrate on being positive. And I had memorized some Bible verses. I memorized OA things. And, and I'll sometimes I'll just say, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Because I have to concentrate so, like, that I'm okay, that my body's not falling apart. I've been able to maintain the, the flute. I don't have to go to food and I don't have to go to that negative thinking. I can just be very, very thankful. That's one of the one of the feelings that is so wonderful, being thankful. And so that's another part of uh, learning again that you can be thankful for everything, even though it might not be exactly what you wanted. 
Uh, so I think that's about the size of it. So thank you.